Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app. If you don't have it, go out and get it. And it is Thursday morning, the 14th of May, 2020, and we are now, well, I don't know, three, four months, depending on how you count, into the coronavirus pandemic and uh, two months plus of essential lockdown, staying home. And we have a wild political environment going on. I mean, there's, if I kind of count up things that I see as headlines this week, it's just quite unbelievable um, what's been going on. And, uh, This whole pandemic is against the backdrop, of course, of the 2020 presidential race, 2020 Senate races, 2020 House races uh, here in the United States. Of course, the pandemic is elsewhere. Um, But uh, one thing I do want to mark and the milestone is it's two years now, two years since the opening of the United States Embassy in Jerusalem, a momentous event uh, I was fortunate to have gone. Uh, and a historic event. Historic because it righted so so much of a wrong, so much of an open wound for our community, so much of an open wound that Israel had been singled out by the world for not being able to designate its own capital city and to decide where its capital should be. Uh, Some countries have followed the United States, most have not, but the apocalypse that was supposed to happen around the moving of the embassy, the United States Embassy, and essentially the recognition of Israel's capital in Jerusalem, the holy city, the eternal capital of the Jewish people, that recognition did not cause the cataclysmic events that had been predicted. Of course, the headlines, if you remember back two years ago, was massive riots and bloodshed on the Gaza border and people dying. And that was supposed to have led to a massive loss of life. And of course, uh, the media portrayed kind of the side by side. I believe a picture of Ivanka and Jared on one side and the people, uh, Palestinians being shot and dying on the other side, which was just remarkable because, uh, you know, that kind of protest had taken place on a regular basis. Not that minimize any loss of life, but it was just, uh, unfortunately, once again, shameful in the reporting. But, you know, that's how it goes. We can handle how those things go. Uh, folks, let's uh, talk for a second about what else is going on in the world? Because as I said, the headlines are quite unbelievable um, when you think about it. Number one, we got to listen into the Supreme Court, very interesting case. And that's really been one of the interesting points of this lockdown, seeing the inner workings of arguments at the Supreme Court in real time. It's been unbelievable. And the cases this week involved President Trump's tax returns, which, as opposed to more esoteric points of law, this was a very interesting 
two cases, one after the other. Very, very interesting for us to kind of go ahead and understand. Um, number two, then we had, well, I'm just in no particular order. Uh, the Fauci hearings, which were remotely, and they weren't the Fauci hearings, they were the kind of the HHS, but Fauci seems to be the leading person when we talk with Dr. Robert Redfield of CDC, um, as well as the, um, as well as the head of the FDA, Dr. Hahn. Uh, then we have the extraordinary saga of the Michael Flynn, uh, of the Michael Flynn, I don't even know what to call it. The undoing or the dropping of the case after he's already pleaded, pled guilty. And the judge has now decided that he might take briefs from the outside to discuss how potentially he might dispose of the case because the justice of the prosecution has essentially dropped the case. But Flynn had already pled guilty. So then what do you do? I mean, either he lied to the FBI or lied to the court. It's beyond my legal interpretation. Um, Israel, of course, has a new government being seated today, which is extraordinary because I don't think we ever thought we thought we were for sure headed to fourth elections. And uh, Bibi has managed to once again, remain prime minister, which is, of course, again, extraordinary uh, feat of politics and his ability to do that. Um, Then we have this thing uh, called Obamagate, which is uh, connected to the Flynn investigation. Um, This idea that the outgoing Obama administration set in motion a chain of events to target Trump campaign officials by talking about their, by essentially sticking the FBI on them for their contacts with the Russians, and that have been an illegitimate investigation. Although, I I have to say, um, um, and then, of course, to instantly, as, of course, Vice President at the time, Joe Biden, who is now the presumptive Democratic nominee running against President Trump, which, of course, we'll get to in a second, uh, in of itself is a strange twist here. Um, you do feel, in a, in a way, that... And let's see, it could be, it could be effective. I'm not, I'm not sure. The jury's still out on that. They're looking, they're kind of looking around for attacks to somehow tar Biden once again. The China thing might not work, I think, particularly because it's going to be tough to talk about Biden's closeness with China when the president himself has kept praising China. And I'm not sure exactly why he keeps doing that, because others in the administration seem to be fine with criticizing China. And but we'll see. Uh, Biden is still in the basement and I feel quite ineffectively. I mean, yes, maybe you think he's gaff prone, but you can't run out the clock until November. And I think it shows. I mean, bottom line is the president's going where he's in the news. We know from 2016 that when the president grabs the airwaves and dominates the airwaves, even if he fumbles a little bit, he is still going to be at the top of people's consciousness. 
and he is still going to gain ground politically. And Biden is just not doing that. And I don't think their campaign is being particularly successful. In fact, the best ads that we saw over the course of the last week to 10 days have been by the uh, Republican, the Lincoln Project. and I thought very effective ad, the, t- the spoof on the Morning in America. Why is it an effective ad? Um, so we have the old Morning in America, the, the classic, uh, the not just classic, the uh, really an, a Hall of Fame type ad of uh, the Ronald Reagan Morning in America and the optimism that. And then it turns it on its head with Morning, M-O-U-R. N-I-N-G, in America about the pandemic and loss of jobs and the continued loss of jobs that will happen. And we see that the issue here is that this ad clearly got into the president's head because he continued to tweet about it. And I think that's probably exactly what the people at the Lincoln Project who are uh, disgruntled Republicans... um, rhinos or people who have left the party, even like Steve Schmidt and Rick Wilson, um, very formidable ad makers and campaign consultants. Uh, George Conway, of course, being one of them, the husband of Kellyanne Conway, which uh, nobody can figure out that situation. Uh, very different, than I think, than the old Mary Madeline James Carville situation that you had them mar- being married to each other and on opposite sides of the Aisle. This is not a situation where George Conway is on the opposite sides of the aisle. He's just anti-Trump. Um, and Kellyanne Conway works in the White House as a public official on the taxpayer payroll. But, well, I don't know. I don't want to jump into that too much. But that is an interesting and clearly got to Trump's head because he tweeted about it. And, of course, George drew attention to the ad, which I thought was very well done. Um, although, you know, kind of a little bit overdone. If you, if you want my opinion, actually, I guess you do if you're listening, very much overdone. I mean, it's, it's the idea that there are long bread lines and burned out buildings and stuff like that is for, hopefully will never happen here right now uh, with this pandemic. And we don't, we hope that doesn't happen. So, but the president was clearly angry about it. And to some, by some accounts, absolutely furious about it. And it dominated his thinking the whole day. So there you go. You have a situation where, um, they you have Republicans making a great ad, and there's so much material on the president every day that the Biden campaign could be doing. And they're just not doing it. It just doesn't seem that they're doing it. Um, you know the 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 whole back and forth about indecision, I guess, if you will, with regard to. Reopening and the whole just response to the pandemic. Um, I know the administration wants to take a victory lap, and I know they've already declared victory, and so that's out there. Uh, on the other hand, it's, I mean, the death toll continues to mount, the number of cases continues to mount. I mean, yes, there's leveling off in certain places, but there are also places that it continues to escalate, and that is an issue. Um, so Biden is still in the basement, and it's just not, I don't think, communicating particularly effectively right now. But the Republicans 
had a glimmer of light this week, uh, which is a California special election to fill the seat of Katie Hill. Uh, this is the northern Cal- North- northern Los Angeles suburbs, still in Southern California. Uh, an all-mail-in ballot, although I guess the, I think they did open a polling place in the end, but almost all-mail-in ballot, which, of course, the Republicans, uh, led by the president, have said Republicans can't win that all-mail-in ballot. They did win this race. It was a seat held by Democrat, of course. It had been Republican in the past, but this was one of those suburban wipeout seats where the Republicans got wiped out. It's a district, actually, that President Trump is particularly underwater, I think, by about 10 points, 53-43, and uh, meaning his approval is 43% in the district, 53% disapprove of him, and a Republican won. Um, Not a lot of campaigning, of course, in in the traditional type of way, but special elections are always funny, but a Republican did win here, and we could see here that despite everything that's going on, Despite generally what's known as economic bad news, <coughs> usually hurts the party in power. Uh, despite the pandemic, Republicans uh, can win in a suburb. And then, of course, we have the Wisconsin ruling this week uh, about uh, which happened yesterday. Sorry, not this week, but well, it is this week. But the Wisconsin Supreme Court threw out the stay-at-home order of Governor Evers. And they said, basically on procedural grounds, it seems, um, that they had gone ahead and done and overstepped his authority to order Wisconsin Wisconsinites, Wisconsinians, to stay home. So it's, uh, it's quite interesting how... Things keep going back and forth on on this, on these key issues. Uh, Wisconsin, um, well, usually we read off, I'm sorry, it kind of did the headlines right away. But at a certain point, usually uh, we kind of read off the numbers. And uh, let's just do that for a second in a state-by-state, um, you know, not to talk about the leaderboard, but really just to talk so people understand where the pandemic is and how it continues. New York, over 350,000 confirmed positive cases of coronavirus, 27, over 27, 27 and a half thousand deaths. Um, the United States, 85,000 deaths right now, 1.4 million people confirmed infected with the virus. Staggering, staggering numbers, my friends. Staggering. And, uh, just take for a moment, it's 85,000, and we were at, maybe, we probably were at the mid-70,000s um, when we spoke last week. New Jersey, 142,000, close to 143,000 de- uh, cases, 9,727 dead. Illinois, uh, growing quite quickly, 84,698 confirmed cases, 3,792 deaths. Massachusetts, over 80,000 cases. Over 5,000 deaths. California, 70, close to 73,000 cases, almost 3,000 deaths. Pennsylvania, 62,000, over 4,000 deaths. Michigan, uh, over 48,000 cases, 4,714 deaths. Texas, 43,000, 1,217 deaths. 
Florida, 42,402, uh, deaths. Georgia, 35,000. Georgia, Florida have both opened up, although Florida, not the entire state. Uh, and, you know, those will be test cases for whether that can be done effectively. 34,000, Connecticut, 34,855 cases, 3,000 deaths. Maryland, 34,812 cases. And the governor is lifting his uh, stay-at-home order uh, starting tomorrow. 1,809 deaths. Louisiana, 32,000 cases. And then we go down. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of states with 20,000 or more cases. Um, and it's just uh, staggering numbers. Staggering uh, numbers. I mean, it's just incredible how much this has affected so many people, so many families so many lives lost and how effective this have now we also have this now struggle and it seems of course it's it's a little bit uh, a sign of the times that not everybody can accept numbers as they are we talk about these numbers and we don't know now of course even here in New York, we know that, you know, certain numbers, how are they counted? How is something identified as a COVID death if somebody hasn't been tested uh, or, or they're found at home um, and they may not have been tested, they never made it to a hospital? How is that recorded? And look, statistics can be manipulated or are often are manipulated. No question about it. I mean, there are, we often have a situation where statistics are out there. Um, so... We need to take everything with a little bit of a grain of salt, but we need to understand that the number of people affected here is a massive number. Uh, even if there are around the edges that there are numbers that need to be... Well, let, let me give you an example, and this is how I think about it. Um, we have our labor statistics, for example, let's say unemployment numbers or GDP numbers. The government issues a unemployment number, and then the next month they will revise that number based on information that happens. Um, that that happens frequently. Um, and there's nothing wrong with revising numbers on how they're again these these numbers that are coming in the ones that I just read are coming in from sources all over the place um, from multiple sources multiple hospitals medical examiners doctors uh, everything and the counting is yes it's a number for dispute but there's no question here that the numbers are staggering uh, whether you subtract or add a thousand here has a thousand there people some people say the numbers are low some people say the numbers are high uh, depending on how you want to look at them I think there's a t interest, and I'm seeing it from conservative media, so obviously, to question the numbers in general, saying that this isn't so bad. I, I, I'm not really sure how you could say that. I mean, uh, people talk about gaslighting and as if somehow you can't say that coronavirus is not, this is not a pandemic, this is not serious. Uh, it's serious. Look around you. I, I, I've been in the hospitals. I've been in the emergency rooms. I've seen it. Uh, you can't tell me that it isn't happening. So, 
whether or not the numbers need to be revised, 1,000 here, 1,000 there, up, down. We talked about the fact that Florida was ordering individual doctors to, I'm sorry, individual counties not to report uh, numbers, so not to collect them. Apparently, that's what's going on in Mexico right now. Uh, emergency rooms are overloaded and, and packed, and the, govern- the government is still reporting very, very low numbers, despite the fact that they're now turning uh, stadiums into uh, hospitals. So there's no question there is a staggering loss of life here as to what's going on, depending on how you look at it. Um, But there is a tendency, and now there is this concept here of Fauci fatigue that we've seen, and we saw it in the hearing this week, a a remarkable hearing from the fact that the chairman, Lamar Alexander, was at home in Tennessee with his dog. This was actually taking place at the same time as the Supreme Court arguments, which I thought, of course, were very interesting. Um, But... The Fauci fatigue, I think, was uh, kind of thrown out there by Rand Paul, who Rand Paul said, you're not the be-all and you're not the end-all of the of this discussion. Um, now, Senator Rand Paul had COVID, had coronavirus, uh, as did I. I. I, to make that clear from before, as the fact that experienced it firsthand and uh he said i don't think he's doing it because he's a bad person but if we're overly cautious and we wait until all infectious disease goes away we'll wait forever and the country is going to be destroyed this is what he said after the hearing and then he said why are you essentially saying the end all now fauci said and i think appropriately that use the word we should be humble about what we don't know. And I think this falls into the fact that we don't know everything about the virus. And we really better be very careful, particularly when it comes to children, because the more and more we learn, we're seeing things that this virus can do we didn't see from the studies in China or Europe. For example, right now, children presenting with COVID-19 who actually have a very strange inflammatory syndrome, very similar to Kawasaki syndrome. I think we better be careful if we are not cavalier in thinking that children are completely immune to the deleterious effects. Now, this is particularly interesting because right now there's a public feud with President Trump who says that Fauci is wrong with regard to not opening schools, as if it's only Fauci's decision to open schools. Um, But a lot of schools are now not going to open because of what we've seen now, this new phenomenon amongst children out there. Um, The strange thing, of course, is that the Republicans take on Fauci when his trustworthy numbers, and maybe they want to drive this down, are in the high 70s, meaning Fauci right now is the most trusted person in America as far as getting information with regard to coronavirus. President Trump's trustworthy numbers are in the high 30s, I think 36, 38, something like that. Um, It's interesting that in the midst of a 2020 hard-fought race, the Republicans seem to be once again just going for the base as opposed to the wide swath of Americans or wide group of Americans who are 
mostly trusting the scientists with regard to this as opposed to politicians. And truthfully, if it's me, when you call up and you're doing, do you call up your local politician? Or do you call up your doctor? I mean, it has to be somebody you trust with regard to information. And it's the same thing with the masks. And this is going on. Now everybody in the White House is wearing masks, but they weren't. And it's very clear. And we saw Katie Miller, who was also infected within the White House, not wearing a mask the last couple of days before she tested positive. So, but at the same time, President Trump's approval rating is about 45%. Um, CNN poll, which came out yesterday and don't have the state-by-state breakdowns, says that he trails Joe Biden nationally, but in 15 battleground states, Trump is either tied or ahead in many of their cases. But 70% of people polled also say that Trump and Pence should wear face masks. Now, the interesting thing, the breakdown of that is 82% of Democrats say that, 70% of independents, and 58% of Republicans. So the problem is the only 12% say the president and vice president should not wear face masks. 70% have no opinion. But 12% say don't wear face masks, and the president continues to resist that. A common sense thing which would probably attract the suburban voters that he needs in 2020. And then at the same time, you also have people defending science. Lindsey Graham, whose re-election is looking a little bit more competitive than it was in South Carolina, said that Fauci is the gold standard. This is after Rand Paul and other senators criticized him, says that he is the gold standard. And Liz Cheney, the number three Republican in the House, called Fauci a national treasure. Uh, Mitt Romney, of course, was uh, having none of the Republicans outside the White House's victory laps on this. But let's talk for a second about two things I think that are really important as we close the show. And something we we need to discuss. Number one is, uh, as we do every week, our criticism of Mayor Bill de Blasio. And this week, it's particularly intertwined with the Jewish community in the fact that the yeshiva probe that was going on, Mayor de Blasio um, denied that he was any there was any interference in the yeshiva probe. Um, the the he denied there was any interference in the yeshiva probe. He denied that there was any issues. Um, any but emails sent show that the way that Bill de Blasio was lobbying Senator Simchefelder and Senate Majority Leader John Flanagan at the time, Republican, was through David Zwiebel, Lava Gouda, and Leon Goldenberg. And that was his way of doing that, despite all the paid apparatus that he had in City Hall in order to convince them to extend mayoral control. He was going to go through the Orthodox community in order to do that. Uh, we see just the utter, I mean, in my my view, just the utter incompetence of de Blasio's City Hall. Number one, putting that in writing. Number two, obviously everything goes into writing. But number two, just linking these whole things together um, in effect. Uh, don't you even trust your own people to get things done I mean, yes, this is something that we would seem, in my, in maybe people's view, to be beneficial to the Orthodox community, the political power that they have. But 
I don't know, the mayor reaching out to a private citizen, to the Jewish groups, to get on on something that's really a non-Jewish issue, to kind of go ahead and enlist. It's very distasteful. And most importantly, this this week, probably missed it out there if you are not a political junkie, but Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, somebody this show does not particularly like, she got bounced off the working family's party line for the November election. And why? Because she needed to collect 15 signatures on that line in order to get on the ballot. And she collected only four, uh, 14 signatures. In fact, 13. One of them was backed out. But she only gave in 14. She is a sitting congresswoman with a staff, with the backing of the Working Families Party and all kinds of democratic socialists and progressive activists around her, one would think that they would have the wherewithal to collect the required 15 signatures. And we all know in New York, you usually have to collect twice that in order to do that, because sometimes you get people who are not enrolled in the Working Families Party or in the right party who might sign your petition. It's amazing a congresswoman who is a national figure who has no interest in the details of actually governing and getting done. And we see that over and over with how she approaches her office. So that is definitely one of the political uh, snafus of the week. That's it here on Spin Class, here on the Nahum Siegel Network. See you next week. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs. Mm-hmm.